course, it's Job who wrote that song. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure there is a greater example of a man in the Bible who really, really loved and trusted God than Job. Under all the circumstances, he still praised and magnified the name of the Lord in a most amazing way. Well, um, if your neighbor asked you this morning, why are you going to church? Would you have an answer? Why, why are you going to church? Why did you come to church this morning? Now, I know some of you came to church possibly because you just wanted to please God so that he'd give us one more gold medal. No, I didn't come for that reason. And, and you know, God's probably thinking, didn't, haven't I given you enough already? I'm like, no, I want one more. And a very important one, of course. There are important reasons why we come to church. And I, I think that Joshua chapter 24 rolls out the answer as well as can be described anywhere else in the scriptures. Joshua chapter 24. In that particular text, and this is the final time that Joshua, the old man of God, now 110 years old, is giving this last um, and best sermon to his congregation. And it says there, then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. So I think this morning, as we work our way through this text in it is possible for us to define the core content, I think, of a great worship celebration and what it really looks like. And from here, the answer that I would be giving to my neighbor is, well, God has assembled us. God has called us together. He has, he has brought us to a place, and we are presenting ourselves to God as a community of faith. Now, the place Shechem was a very strategic and important and emotionally significant place for the people of God of that time. It was there in Shechem, 400 years ago, where Abraham first pitched his tent in the promised land. It was there where he, fir- he received his first promise fulfilled. It was there in Shechem where Jacob uh, ordered that his family would bury all of the other gods and trinkets that they were tagging along with them and be done with them and be totally focused and committed to God. It was there at Shechem. Shechem is really what we would call an Old Testament cathedral, an open-air cathedral. Uh, Shechem was um, situated between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And if you can get a picture of it in your mind, you've got these two mountains close beside one another, and you've got this valley that runs in between. And it was there that Moses called the people, and one group of people stood on Mount Ebal, one group of people stood on Mount Gerizim, and they called back and forth to each other in an antiphonal way the great realities of God, the curses of God and the blessings of God, the blessings for following God and those curses that would come upon them if they didn't follow God. And it was there on that site that the great emotional things of celebration and of the visitation of God were placed upon the people. It was an important place, a place of celebration and emotion. It is important... When we gather together in a sacred assembly like this, that we understand that it is to be filled with emotion and passion and celebration and all that comes with that. 
And, and the Lord is going to roll out in Joshua chapter 24 a description, a rundown, uh, just a few highlights of the great things that he has done for the people. That they might remember who he is. That they might re- rehearse their relationship with God all over again. It is when we gather together like this on a Sunday morning that we fundamentally come together and realize that there are certain realities to our relationship with God that give shape to our daily lives. In fact, knowing who and what you have is key to knowing what to do and how to live. That frames an excellent celebration of worship. Sharing with each other who God is and what we have in God that we might know what to do and how to live. In fact, um, the Olympics are sort of a, a, a reminder to us or a, a picture of us of what collective, collective um, connectedness to a common cause can do emotionally for a people. That's what we are about when we gather together in a great celebration. It is important for us to gather together, to celebrate to have emotion, to have passion. All of that accompanying, remembering, rehearsing, replaying, repeating the great things of God, rejoicing in what and who we have in God because it's critical to commitment. And the reason I say that is because lasting commitment doesn't come from the head. We are informed the content, the truth of what we believe is, of course, formed and shaped in, in our mind and our head. But lasting commitment always comes from the heart. That's why the scriptures tell us in many, many different places, but certainly one specific, trust in the Lord with what? All your head? With all your heart. It was Caleb who was described by God as having a different spirit, a different heart, a different attitude. He said, observe my servant Caleb. He is one who is wholehearted. So it is important for us, in terms of a commitment booster, to gather together on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis and come together in this solemn and sacred celebration and ceremony together to reaffirm with one another our passion for our commitment to God. That's what this great gathering was all about in Joshua chapter 24. As Warren Wiersbe put it, The eyes see what the heart loves. If the heart loves God and is single in this devotion, then the eyes will see God whether others see him or not. The eyes see what the heart loves. Joshua, as a great leader of God, God's people, uh, knew this and gathered the people together to remember the great things of God that they might not grow complacent, but might be people of great commitment. So let's look at the text. Joshua chapter 24. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of, the, of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And some people estimate that there were likely a million people at this church service. Can you imagine? Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Now, he was an old man, 110 years old, surrounded by a million people in the valley, some in front of Mount Ebal, some in front of Mount Gerizim. 
And, and uh, here's an old, feeble, 110-year-old man saying, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, is saying. And then there would be guys, what did he say? <laughs> this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, saying it would pass all the way up the hill, and back down. It was like an amazing thing going on, I think. I think that's how it went. Unless God does, did something else miraculous. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron. And I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your forefathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help. And he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought, you, he brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, or Canaanites Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. I want to stop there this morning. Next week we'll uh, take a look at the so what from this as we end there. But I want to stay right here this morning. Father, um, this is an amazing rehearsal of the great things of God. This is just a sample, just a taste. But what an amazing taste. Father, it is true that it is about the heart. Those who would follow after you, follow hard after you, are those who are wholehearted. It is important for us, Father, to to move from what we know in our heads and minds to our hearts with emotion and passion and commitment to spur one another on, to gather together in these sacred assemblies and remind each other of how great you are. That we might stand to our feet and praise our great God together. This collective connectedness around the common cause of Jesus Christ, the greatest cause in all the world. So our Father, I pray that you would choose to move in our hearts today. I pray, Father, that you would choose to open up the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the greatness of our great God. I pray, Father, that you would completely eclipse the other distractions that might be 
circling around in our minds even now. That we might with uh, collective attention singly focus on the person and presence of our Lord, our Master, our Savior, our God, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name I come and pray. Amen. So I want to share with you five realities this morning that with respect to our relationship with God, uh, the info God delivers is really to grip our hearts. It's not to help us to be more intelligent about theology. It's not a rule book that he delivers to us, but it is a relationship. And we rehearse that relationship and the realities of that relationship because it means something to us and it It causes our lives to be shaped based on that relationship. And the first thing that I see in this text is that that God is the center of all events. That's important to know. He is the centerpiece of of everything that takes place. Why do I say that? Well, I don't know if you noticed while I was reading, but in this short window of Scripture, there are 21 first-person verbs. I did. I gave. I delivered. I moved, I saved you. On and on, God tells us 21 times in 13 verses that it's about him. It's about what God has done. He is the center of all events. The story of history, rightly told, has God as the story creator and storyteller. This is what God is saying, Joshua says. I'm not talking for myself. I'm not making up stories. I'm telling you, this is what God is saying to you. You know, when I... If I were to be asked by my neighbor why I'm going to church on Sunday morning, like none of them are ever up to ask that question. But if I ever were asked, well, I'm going to hear what God has to say to me. He's called me to present myself to him. And now this is what the Lord wants to say to you. Every time we open up his word, the, the word, uh, the, the book, the scriptures, it is God speaking to us. And we learn that all the people of history are simply bit players serving the story that God is writing. All of these nations, all of these kings, all of these people. And by the way, God doesn't orchestrate this or choreograph this gathering here this morning any differently than he gathered this particular group of people together. He didn't come to them and say, now what do you want? What would it take for me to to make it a little more attractive, a little more appealing for you to gather in the valley of Shechem so that I could talk to you? Is there something more I could do? Is there some stylistic change I could make? Is there some marketing strategy that I could come up with that would get you out of bed on a Sunday morning and have you come to the sacred assembly? I don't see God doing that. God doesn't orchestrate some sort of attraction What do you want? What would I need to do next to make you interested enough to give me something of your attention? No, no, God presents himself as this is who I am. And this is what I have done for you. There should be nothing more needed to wake you up on a Sunday morning and get you here other than what God has done And who he is. And so the right question when we gather in this assembly is not so much, what what more have you got for us? You know, could you sweeten it up next Sunday? Because I'm not really sure I'm going to come unless it's a lot more interesting than it was today. 
No. The right question is, what does Jesus want from me? In light of who he is and what he has done, what does he want? So in reality, beloved, in light of God being the center of all events, from the human perspective, because we talk now about the God side of things, he is the center of all events. What, what's our role? I would suggest to you that the birthplace of all events from the human side is prayer. Prayer. You see, when I pray, it sends me to the center, to the central control of the universe. And I don't know if you noticed, but while I was reading here, uh, down in the little section about Balak and Balaam, and and just before I got there, with respect to Egypt in in verse 7, so verse 7 and verse 10, it says there, when, when the people cried out to the Lord for help, he listened to them. Down in verse 10, it says when, the, um, the, 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 when Balaam was trying to curse the people of God, he refused to listen to him. The events that occur, and, and as we trace through the history of God, you can see that, that everything that happens in human history is born from the human side of things on the basis of prayer. In fact, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, it, it, made a, it makes a statement there of the distinction between the people of God and, and the other people of the world. It says there that at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. That set us apart, distinct from everybody else. God is the Lord of history. He's the center of all events. Our role is to call out to him. God is the center because the triune God must occupy the central place in our thinking and in our planning and in our petitioning and in our praising and in our dependence. So we gather together Sunday morning to remind each other that God is the center. Christ is the the central point of all events in our lives. Secondly, I notice here, he, first of all, he, he talked about, I have done this and I have done that. And then he says in verse 3, Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived on the river and worshipped other gods. Our story, like Abram's story, was bleak before Christ. And um, I, I don't know where you are in your family line in terms of God coming to faith. I don't know whether you're the first generation or your first person in your family who's ever come to faith. I don't know. Or whether you're second along or third generation, whatever. But somewhere, this is, this is your story as well. This somewhere, it was very bleak. He's reminding them that, do you not realize that, that at one time your forefathers worshipped other gods? They, they didn't, you didn't choose me. You chose other gods. That's your story. That's your history. But by grace, I rescued you out of that very bad idea. The gods that were sabotaging your eternity. And I brought you into my family. I see the second celebration, the second issue of relationship here is God is the promise keeper. 
He went to Abraham and he said, I, I will make you a great nation. I will, I will make a great people of you. Now I want you to go to a land I will show you. I rescued you from that, God says. I, I took you in graciously, promised to keep you and, and to lead you and to give you the things that I've given to you. You chose everything else but me in your life. I gave you a new beginning from the darkness of false gods. And I put you on my path. Now, I I want you to know that he says here that I I promised your father many descendants. And I, I delivered on that promise. I'm a promise keeper. But by the way, not, be, not just because I had promised it. But because Abraham, your forefather, obeyed and walked on God's path. That's important. We, we all like to gather and hear the great promises. What's God promising me today? I want my promise box. Take one out. What's the promise for today? Love to hear promises. Those promises are predicated on the fact that you walk on God's pathway. That's why Jesus, in introducing himself, said he is the way before he said he's the truth and the life. Jesus said, I am the way first. So so what's our role in all of this? It's it's to understand that the promises that were fulfilled in the past guarantee, of course, hope for the future. So, So... in reality, our responsibility is he's the promise keeper. I'm to be the path keeper. My role is if we are path keepers, we always have hope. See, the strategic spiritual blunder in too many Christian lives is that we crave promises, but we ignore the path. That's why some believers are stranded wondering why the promises of God never seem to touch them. Are you on the path? You on God's way? See, Abraham, when he was told to go to a land that God would show him, it says in the text, he went. And then he saw in his life the many descendants that were promised to him by God. So if we are people who are path keepers... And we have Christ in you, the hope of glory. It says Colossians 1.27. We rest on the hope of eternal life, Titus 1.2. We have hope as an anchor, Hebrews 6.19. Uh, if we hold swerving, unswervingly to the hope professed, because we, he who promised is faithful, Hebrews 10.23. Faith is being sure of what you hope for, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Heaven is sure because God has been faithful in his promise, fulfilling his promises of the past. We labor not in vain because those in the past were not in vain in their labor. God is a promise keeper. I notice thirdly that God is in sovereign control over people, politics, and powers. I don't think it's accidental that in choosing this list of the many, many hundreds of thousands of possible things that God could have listed that he had done. He chose to highlight people. He chose to highlight politics. And he chose to highlight power. I don't know. Did you notice that he, he says with, the, with respect to the people, he talks about Jacob and Esau. 
And did you, did you notice the reversal of the normal order of things? When you're, when you're referencing children, you usually start with the firstborn and you describe the children thereafter. Who are your children? Well, I have Graydon and Jordan and Bronwyn. I don't usually start at Bronwyn. You usually start with a firstborn. Here, God says it was both Jacob and Esau. Now, they were twins, but Esau was born first. And our minds are, are sort of circling and thinking, wait a second, shouldn't he have said Esau and Jacob? No, I am saying Jacob and Esau on purpose. Because he's a sovereign God who is in charge of all things. And what he is pointing out here is he's a gracious God, not because Jacob was a wonderful guy. Jacob was a schemer, a deceiver. He wasn't a really nice person. His, uh, his EQ, uh, emotional quotient, was like not all that good. No, he, it was because God is gracious. And, and the point that Joshua is making here is that Israel's national existence was because of the unmerited divine choice of God, not because they were special or especially nice people. You aren't here this morning because you are especially nice people, although I love you to death and you know that and you... And you're pretty nice people, but only nice because Christ has made you nice. You weren't nice people. I'm not a nice person. And we are here because of the choice of God. Gracious choice of God. That's what we sing to each other. That's what we, when we gather in assembly like this, we remind each other, this is a gracious God. This is a story of a gracious God. This is a story of, 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 of a God who gave us what we didn't deserve. This is a God who deserves everything I have because he's, this is what he's done for me. I, I didn't deserve this. And then, of course, the word Egypt comes up, the, the nation of Egypt, the politics of Egypt. And it's about kingship and who really is the king. Says, I took you down to Egypt. I decided to afflict the Egyptians. I brought you out of Egypt. I decided to put your back against the sea. I decided to put water over top of the Egyptians. Like, I'm in charge of the Egyptians. Pharaoh or no Pharaoh, when I decided it was enough, it was enough. I was at a really, really little church a couple of weeks ago. And when I mean little, 30 people. 30 people, a little white church in the center of farmland of Maryland. It was something. You sure stood out as a visitor in that church. <laughs> anyway, they were sharing a little testimonial time. It was, you know, it was the big snowstorm weekend down there. Like, they were freaking out. But for Canadians, it was like a dusting. Like, it's a big deal. What's the big deal, you know? But they were, yeah, cancel school, cancel the whole government, can't, shut down the whole country. But anyway... There, there was a testimony time. There's a, this uh, elderly lady sitting in front of me, and she said, I have a, te- I have a testimony. She said, you know, she said, um, because I don't know if you know or not, but the, the American government shut down, like, totally for about four days. The most powerful government in the world shut down for four days because they had a little bit of snow. Anyway, she says, she says, you know what really I'm really excited about? She said that God can just shut down our government anytime he wants to. I thought, oh, yeah. It's like, oh, that is good. That, you know, I was like, that, that is, especially the American government shut that down. So like, wow. 
that is good. We don't, we don't webcast this thing to the States, do we, by any chance? <laughs> so, so, you know what? What the message is here, when, when the, don't grow anxious when the political storm clouds seem to threaten the harvest of God's promises for your life. God's in charge. And there's this little incident of Balaam, you know. The king of Balak, this king of, king of Moab, uh, outsources uh, some hitman work on Israel. And he, he grabs this guy, Balaam, and, and Balaam tries to curse the people of God. And I think it's fascinating. By, by the way, the Bible never minimizes the seriousness of the power of evil. Never. It never minimizes it. So understand this. That, that uh, this is not presented here to say, you know what, this is no big deal when there's a curse put upon you by some evil, the work of the, the evil one or anything like that. It's, it's never portrayed as that. But on the other hand, the story is this. When the people of God called out to God, he listened to them and he acted. When, when someone decided to curse the people of God, it says there that God decided not to listen to him. It's an amazing contrast. All the power of hell is arrayed against God's people. And all God has to do is just simply grow hard of hearing. I'm sorry, I'm not hearing this today. And it's all over. You understand that? That's the picture here. That's what we serve. That's why we gather on Sunday morning to remind each other, hey, you know what? It may look bad. There may be a lot of things that seem to be arrayed against you. But all that has to happen is for God just to grow a little bit hard of hearing. And nothing's going to happen to you. And God is always attentive to you because he loves you. God is sovereign. So in these matters of deliverance, God delivering people, God delivering people out of the political situation, God delivering people out of powers arrayed against them, it's always for the purpose of progressing God's direction. He brought them out to take them somewhere. He brings, it's always about that. So in our, our reality, do not get stranded or satisfied with deliverance alone. Sometimes that's who we are. You know, we're, we're, well, I, just, I got saved. That's good enough for me. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. That's great. But Jesus saved you, taking you out of something to take you somewhere. And in fact, the scriptures talk to us about, tell us it was to enter into his rest. That's what this was all about. This picture of the promised land. It's entering into a place of the fullness of God where you are fully engaging in, and experiencing all of the spiritual benefits and realities of being in relationship with God. That's what the, the promised land was to picture. That's why the writer in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, talks about entering into the rest of God. That's why Jesus said, all you who are weary and heavy laden and burdened, come unto me and I will give you rest. Now, I don't know what picture you have. You think it's like, hey, I'm going to give you a chaise lounge and a pillow and put your feet up and that's what I'm talking about. You think that's what Jesus is talking about? He's not. Entering into the rest of Jesus is quite different than that. Because he goes on to say, after that, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Entering into the rest of Jesus 
is, and, and how, now I'm going to stray into the world of agriculture, which you all know I'm a, very, a great expert in, but the whole idea of the yoke is when you had a couple of beasts of burden, right, and you put some sort of wooden implement over top of their necks, and it sort of attached the two of them together so that where one ox went, like, the other guy had to go. Like, that's the way it works, right? That's what the yoke means. The rest that Jesus is talking about is when you fully are connected to Jesus so that what Jesus wants, you do. Where Jesus goes, you go. That, that's what it looks like. It's an it's a entering into the fullness of your relationship with Christ. And in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4, it's all about obedience. No different than how they got into the promised land here. How was it that he took them from Egypt to the promised land? The only way they got to the promised land was by what? By obeying God. That's the entering of the rest. The relationship that he wants you to have in fullness. There's one other thing I notice in the text. And you all know this already. But God's ways are different than our ways. You're like, no, really? We hadn't noticed. Like, how many times have we said, wow, if I was like king of the universe, I wouldn't be running it this way? We regularly, like, wow, what what is God doing? And I think it comes out a lot in the text here. This is what you have seen. You have seen that God's ways are different than your ways. Uh, Jacob Esau thing, the older serves the younger. That's That's not our way. I put you in Egypt and I afflicted Egypt. I rescued you out of Egypt and then I took you and put your back against the wall of the Red Sea. They were like, what's God doing? This is, this is crazy. I picked a fight with the Amorites and then I beat them up for you. Rather than stop a curse, I wouldn't listen to it. Turned it into a blessing. I substituted hornets so you wouldn't have to use a sword. And then to top it all off, I gave you a turnkey operation in the promised land. Stuff you didn't pay for. You didn't build this stuff. I just gave it to you. Yeah, you're right. God's ways are not like our ways. I'm like, if it were my kids, I'm going to make them work right to the bone. You know, you're not getting anything free. I'm not giving you anything. You've got to work for it. God just hands it over. God gives you what he wants you to have in most surprising ways in most unusual timing. Haven't you noticed that to be true in your life? Don't we have to remind each other of that? Don't we have to encourage each other with that truth? And don't we have to remind each other that what you work so hard for is you sometimes don't get? And you're like, what? And then he turns around and gives you something you barely noticed and you didn't work for it at all. Why does he do that? Why does he put us in great intervals of desperate difficulty? I think it's so we'll call out to him. And then he can show off. And then we can be amazed at him. And then when we're amazed at him, we go and tell everybody else about how great he is. We gather together and we sing with our voices lifted up because God is a really great God. So moments of historical desperation certainly didn't mean God had forgotten them or forsaken them, and it doesn't mean that for you. So rather than personal striving and manipulation during times of darkness, submit to depending upon God. That's what he wants you to do. Otherwise, you will fall into a pattern of your own ways. You'll stop praying. 
You start figuring it out on your own. One last observation about our relationship. He rehearsed all of this so we will always acknowledge the awesome reality of our relationship with him and then center it into one place, one major, one major point. With God, the impossible isn't. With God, the impossible isn't. You know, um, if we ignore this truth... Failing to rehearse this reality. It will leave you near the promised land, but not there. It will cause you to have standstill faith, which is no faith really. It will cause you in your life to plateau, rather than go on and experience all that God has for you in the place of entering into his rest. The story of the Lord is always told, by the way, from the top of the victory podium. You'll never see God come out and apologize for not owning the podium. Never. He owns it. Every story that he's telling is from the victory spot, from the top of the victory podium. And because of that, to keep our saving faith from becoming just standstill faith, can I urge you to stop being afraid to tackle what you know God wants for you. Some of you, you know, you may find yourself still at the crossroads of whether or not you even think you want to step into the, onto the pathway. This is all written and recorded and accurate historically to remind us That God, Jehovah God, is the true God. And not the gods of others. You see, um, when difficult situations happen in your life, you can't buy yourself out of sin slave market. And your present profession, by the way, is not going to acquire eternal life for you. You can't trade your possessions when the Doctor is looking at a very bad report physically for you. It all comes down to the Lord who is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he is the victorious one. And I want to remind you that the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1 says this. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short. I want to um, close the service this morning with one big question in light of this gathering of celebration and emotion and passion and recommitment. What are you afraid to tackle that you know God wants? In light of your relationship with God, in light of who he is, in light of what he's presented himself to be and what you have witnessed with your own eyes and your own hearts among the people who are gathered here, what are you afraid to tackle that you know God wants?
I wonder if there are some people in here who have been bumping up against the idea week in and week out, month in and month out, with the whole idea of, do I really want to give my life to Jesus Christ or not? I'm afraid to tackle that. But I'm feeling like that's what God wants for me. Or maybe there are people in here who are, are afraid to tackle the whole idea of baptism, where you would step forward and publicly declare that you are a follower of Jesus Christ in obedience to entering in. Maybe there's some of you who are, are afraid to tackle the idea of joining this church and getting involved in serving in some meaningful way. But you know God wants that for your life. Maybe some of you are, are, are afraid to tackle the idea of increasing your financial investment in resourcing the ministry of God. But you know he wants you to tackle that. Maybe still others of you are, are afraid to hold, tackle the whole idea of forgiving somebody. But you know God wants you to do that. Or, or maybe of receiving forgiveness and reconciliation. But you know that's what God wants. The purpose of rehearsing our relationship with God is that we might be go big people. Go big people have God memories. Amazing God memories. So I'm going to pray as we close and I'm going to I'm going to open an invitation this way. If God has spoken to your heart this morning in the sacred assembly of God's people, about something that you have not been willing to tackle, you're afraid to tackle, but you know God wants. I'm going to pray that God will move your heart to stop resisting this morning. And after I'm finished praying, I'm going to come down to the front of the church here. Pastor Calvin will be here. And and we're going to invite whoever you are whatever decision you've made for God this morning, come and join us and we'll pray, pray with you about this, this obstacle that you're going to tackle because you know God wants you to do it and you're not afraid anymore. Because with God, the impossible isn't. So some of you will be going in that direction. Some of you need to be coming in this direction. Let me pray as we close. Father, Uh, You know what you're about this morning and what you want to accomplish in lives. You've been working away and the Holy Spirit has prepared this moment and moved us to this place, this time, this message. Lord, um, as you did in the first service, there were many who stepped forward, not afraid anymore to tackle what you want them to do, but asking you for strength. So Lord, this morning there are some in here, this service, who need to come down and pray. Take up the challenge. This is a very specific and individual thing, Lord, that you are speaking. What are you afraid to tackle that you know God wants? Lord, this is your work. These are your people. They belong to you. And you have delivered them to direct them to be on the path. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you come. Pastor Kelvin and I will pray with you.